Well, good evening. Glad to see you guys out on a Wednesday night. I'm so excited to get to be back here on a Wednesday evening. This is awesome to be back here, isn't it? Well, at least this part is awesome. Up till now, it's been awesome. We'll see if it continues to be awesome after this. You may disagree here in just a few minutes. But tonight, we are going to be back in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I've entitled the message this evening, You Don't Know What You've Got Till It's Gone. Uh, for one, because I loved the chance to rip off a Cinderella song title, uh, mostly because my parents listen to this and then it confuses them about what the heck I'm talking about. But anyway, us other children of the 80s and 90s, we understand. But where we stand in Scripture at this point in time is King Solomon is now at the end of his career. So he's at the end of his run as he's writing this book. And he's really able to look back on what's transpired and where he's at and he really, I believe, sees things coming to an end for himself personally, and really uh, eventually even for the kingdom that was handed over to him. So tonight, we're going to look at a couple things. We're going to look at popularity and religiosity, which I'm pretty sure is a word that I just made up, but being new at this, I'm excited about any time I can make up a new word too. So I'm excited about a Cinderella song title and about making up a word. So there we go. We're going to pick up, to begin with, uh, in the fourth chapter as we wrap up uh, this, and then we'll move on into chapter 5 here in a few minutes. And we start tonight with popularity. Beginning in verse 13, Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. And so where Solomon starts us off at is he's basically saying it's better to be born young and not have a great uh, gifting, basically have a kingdom handed over to you, than uh, being born into this kingship, being born into prosperity and to the advantage because I didn't, you wouldn't have to work for it as hard. So what he's basically saying is it would be better if we compared the two to be born in a situation like Joseph had than a situation like Solomon had. So from Solomon's perspective, he was born not just with a silver spoon in his mouth, but you could say a gold-plated spoon. I mean, he was born with a tremendous advantage. The kingdom was basically handed over to him running as well as it had ever ran after his father David passed off the scene. And Solomon really had this advantage. He was a member of what we would call the Lucky DNA Club, right? Anybody know that? I used to listen to a radio show host that would, he hated Joe Buck. The, the baseball announcer, football announcer, Joe Buck, if anybody's a sports fan, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you're completely lost at this point. But anyway, Joe Buck was the, sa- the, the son of the famous Cardinals announcer, Jack Buck. And this guy, for whatever reason, had it out for Joe, and he called him a member of the Lucky DNA Club. That because his dad was a famous broadcaster, he had all these built-in advantages, and he was able to roll right up into the business. And I'm sure a lot of us know a guy like that or a gal like that that's basically been gifted a business from a first or second generation family. And so what Solomon's saying is it's better to be born into really into poverty where you had to work for it. From the standpoint of Joseph, where he was basically sold into slavery by his own family into prison then after that, and eventually had to work his way up, if you want to call it that, even though God was seeing him through it at each step of the way, into where he was eventually uh, able to experience this great prosperity as he was second in command in Egypt under Pharaoh. So that's where he's going at with this, is that in God's economy, he's not worried about uh, starting positions as much as he is ending positions. So then this next piece we're going to look at in verse 15. 
And I saw all the living who walk under the sun, and they were, in, they were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king, yet those who came afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and grasping for the wind. So what Solomon is, is saying to us here is, here's all these people that have basically been brought into the kingdom, and they all respect me, and even their kids respect me. But before long, there's going to be a group of people that don't even know who I am, and not only will they not uh, consider me a great king, but they're not even going to know me, period. It's going to move on. And, and if we were to even look beyond that, what he's really seeing here is the fall of his own kingdom. And so the question I put up there is, what happens when the party's over? So for Solomon, he's seeing the party coming to an end. And the answer to this, at least in this story, is Rehoboam is what happens when the party's over. That if things are shaky with dad, after he's been given this great thing, then things are even shakier when his son comes in. So if Solomon was given the kingdom with a gold spoon, uh, Rehoboam was given the kingdom with a diamond-encrusted spoon. I mean, it was even better than when David had it. So even better than when David passed it on to Solomon, it was passed on to Rehoboam. And where Rehoboam went with it was, uh, he was, he'd just taken over the kingdom, and he has an opportunity here. All the tribes of Israel come to him and they said, listen, your dad, uh, he taxed us pretty heavily. So why don't you make things just a little bit easier on us, just lighten the load a little bit. And so Rehoboam went back to the council of some of the older, wiser men, and they say, listen, if you'll do this thing, if you'll lighten the burden that's been placed on the kingdom because of your father, then these guys are going to serve you forever. And he took that advice in, and then he went to some of his peers, some of the folks that he really wanted to respect him. He had a desire to be popular. And he went to them, and they said, no, listen, here's what you tell them. You tell them that your little pinky is thicker than your father's waist. And you go back and you tell them that he might have punished you with whips. I'm going to punish you with a scourge. You really lay it on him thick. And so Rehoboam, because he didn't listen to his father's advice that we're going to get to in a second, he goes back and he gives them the second piece of advice. And what transpires next is the entire kingdom is then ripped from his hands. He's left with two tribes that still follow him, Judah and Benjamin, and the entire northern ten all go with a guy named Jeroboam. So everything basically fell apart at this one moment because he didn't follow this piece of advice, which we can see in Proverbs 29.25, that his dad wrote, which says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So from Rehoboam's standpoint, what he valued, what he treasured the most was popularity. He wanted people to like him. I think many of us would agree that we like people to like us. All right? You may be a, a tough guy, maybe you say, I don't care what anybody thinks, but even for the people that want to be the, the tough guys that don't care what anybody thinks, there's usually someone in your life, either here on earth or maybe they've passed on, that you really value or you did value their opinion. You want man or men to like us. But if we if we make that our thing, if we want to be liked so much, the danger there is that popularity puts the power into the hands of men who are inherently evil. So you're going to have a real problem when you put all your faith in men and what they think of you. So that's where we start off this evening. And now we're going to move into the fifth chapter. and We're going to pick up on religiosity. And what we're really going to focus on is three different ways that Solomon covers that we approach God. The first of which being in 
in the form of offerings or how we come into the house of the Lord. So pick up with me, if you would, in uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. So to begin with, he says, walk prudently. And if you were to literally translate that you could in, into our language in a way that would make more sense, you could say, watch your step. So as we enter into the house of the Lord, watch your step, which really means uh, Pastor Mike would say, check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? So as we come into this place, we're to, to really think about things before we, we step in, think about things before we worship, and to be introspective. In fact, when he, when he writes, draw near to hear, he's really saying, be introspective. Look at yourself before you come into the house of the Lord. Now for me, at least, I'll throw a few things out there that happened to me before I entered the house of the Lord. Usually my kids are driving me nuts. Uh, perhaps uh, my wife and I have gotten after each other on a Sunday morning because we're running late. I don't like to run late. She tells me five minutes is fashionably late. You don't understand. Everybody's late. This is how you do things. So it really, it, things can start off in our house very, with a lot of tension, right? I'm sure nobody else has experienced any of those things before. I'm probably the only one. But, you know, that's really where we start off often, and then we come in, and then we we want to put the smile on our face and we want to worship. But the issue is uh, we struggle, right? We struggle with this. So the question I put up to start with is how do I, how do we approach the Lord? Well, first of all, to, to understand the approach, we have to understand to begin with that there is a separation. There is a separation between us and God, period. It's been that way since the fall, since Genesis chapter 3, at the fall of man, a separation happened. It occurred, right? We were spirit, uh, soul, body. Now we're body, soul, spirit. And this separation was so great that as God placed uh, Adam and Eve outside of the garden, he put not just one cherubim, but two cherubim at the gates that faced east that allowed them to enter into the garden with flaming swords. So if God wasn't trying to drive home enough of a point by putting one cherubim there, which, oh, by the way, in Hezekiah's time, one cherubim took out 185,000 troops from the Assyrian army in one night, he placed two just for emphasis. And then flaming swords, because flaming swords are awesome, right? So we're, we're, we get this idea, this understanding that we're not to go back there. Not only we're not to go back there, we can't go back there. So were the cherubim and the flaming swords there to protect God from us? No, they're to protect us from God. You see, this place, this garden, was a spot where God's glory dwelt. And if they were to go back in there, it would spell instant death for these sinful Adam and Eve. There was no way for them to get back there. So they were really there to protect them from doing something harmful to themselves. If we look then at, uh, through the course of the Old Testament, how this, this plays out, we see the temple and the tabernacle. That both of these things had a holy place, and then it had an area called the Holy of Holies. And separating the holy place from the Holy of Holies was a veil, which, by the way, if you want to check this, in Second Chronicles 3.14, woven into the veil, you could probably guess, were cherubim, right? Separating that spot that had the Ark of the Covenant, that place where God's glory would actually go and fill the temple, it separated man from God. That only once a year, only on Yom Kippur, 
could one person, the high priest, enter into this place. And he could only do that after he went through all these rituals. Uh, blood on the ear, blood on the foot. I mean, he had a whole list of things. Washing, cleansing, to enter in before the presence of God. You see, there was a great separation. And an impossible distance for us to cover. That there was only one way that we would ever have open access to the throne room. That would be through a perfect sacrifice. Understand with me as we enter in tonight, the only way we can have open access is through the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. You see? And that, that just uh, goes to show us a little bit about what we have to think about when we come in here tonight. Right? That sombers the mood a little bit. When you think of all these things that were put into place that separated us from him, that he was the only one that could do it for us, right? So in 1 Samuel 15, 22, we want to think about how then we offer ourselves, how then we come in with offerings, whether it be money, whether it be time, whether it be service. How then, if we understand what Jesus has done for us, how then do we come to this place where we're giving up an offering to the Lord? And at this time, if you go to 1 Samuel 15, we're going to look at verse 22. At this time, the nation has just come off this tremendous victory. Saul has had this big victory over the Amalekites. And what's taken place is he was given specific direction by God to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Man, woman, child, animal, everything. Wipe them out. And instead, what Saul did is almost everything he was required to do. But he thought, you know what, there's some pretty awesome livestock here, and I bet I could use that for great sacrifices to the Lord. And so what Samuel says to Saul as he approaches, and Saul hasn't done everything that the Lord instructed him to do, is has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. So I put up here on the screen that obedience, that offerings without obedience are meaningless. That if we're not going to be obedient in our offering, if we're not going to be obedient with what we have going on internally, it's really pointless. That instead, the offerings that we should come to the Lord with are in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, what Paul writes is I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the sacrifice, the offering that we're to come with, knowing everything we know about what was done for us, is, is just this, our bodies, a living sacrifice, and offering ourselves up to be renewed. Renewed by what? Renewed by the Word. And the, the Word of God, I put up here on the screen, is not a salad bar. We do not get to go to the salad bar at the Golden Corral and pick out the things we like and the things we don't like. Cucumbers, not today. Spinach, I don't think so. Ranch dressing, absolutely. Give me some croutons, right? And instead, the, the Word of God is to be consumed from beginning to end, completely and holy, all right? We're to, we're to take all these things in when we think about our offerings. All right, so the next way then that we approach God that he covers here is with prayers. So pick up with me again in the fifth chapter in verse 2. 
and we'll cover verses 2 and 3. And do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. So the first thing to note about prayer, what Solomon is covering, is not just corporate prayer, as he talks about the rash words of your mouth, but also what you utter in your heart. So also the things that are going on internally, that, we're, that we would only talk to God about, just between us. To, to, to be careful and be mindful over what we pray. To watch how we enter into even uh, our communion just personally with Him. And Jesus picks this up in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And what he says in verse 7, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the thing you have, excuse me, the Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. So in verse 8, we see that the Father knows about the things that we have even before we have to ask, which negates this idea that I can pray in just the right way and then God will answer me. And, and I'm sure you, you've heard that, boy, or you've thought even, boy, if I can just pray this certain way, if I can just say the right thing, if I can just put together the right nouns and the right verbs and the right adjectives and just this little puzzle, then God will, will have to answer me, right? He'll have to do what I'm asking. But the, the issue with that way of thinking is we're basically the ones then that are in control. We're trying to manipulate God into doing our will instead of us doing his will. It, it's similar to, to this. Uh, my kids, I'll admit I'm not the greatest father, but my kids will come to me and they might ask me for chocolate cake for breakfast. And I would, of course, because I've been instructed not to feed them cake for breakfast, I would say, no, you may not have chocolate cake for breakfast. But then they go get back together in their little huddle and they come out and they go, ha, oh, we got it now. We'll ask dad for pancakes. They come back out. Well, absolutely you may have pancakes for breakfast. That's perfect. You can't have chocolate cake, but you can certainly have cake fried in a pan and we'll put chocolate chips on top of them. Not only that, you can have syrup with it. That'd be even better. And oh, a half a banana too to balance this whole thing out. So you see, so I've just been manipulated by my children. They, they wanted cake, but instead I gave them pancakes. I sure showed them. But it doesn't work like that with God, right? I can't switch it up and go, ah, he doesn't want me to have cake. I'll go ask for pancakes. No, not at all. So what is, if this isn't what God is looking for in our prayer life, what then is he looking for? Let's turn just a little bit further to the right to Luke chapter 18. And in this section, this is a, a parable that Jesus is sharing uh, about a, the Pharisee comparing him to the tax collector. And in the Pharisee's example, what he's, what he's showing is how the Pharisee looks like on the outside. He has it all together. And this is the Pharisee's prayer. I like this in verse 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed to God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even a tax collector. So he, he thanks the Lord he's not all these things. But what Jesus shares about the tax collector is this in verse 13. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself hum- will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, Jesus is more concerned about our heart. He's more concerned about the tax collector who can't even raise his eyes to heaven because he's thinking about the weight of his sin. I don't know about you, but I've spent a lot of time not being able to even lift my head thinking about all the stuff I've got going on. This, this prayer of the tax collector is convicting to me. But you see, that's the heart that God's looking for. Unfiltered, raw. He's not looking for us to come to him and being able to pray in the perfect King James and repeating it back to him. He's not looking for us to pray with great hair like Jimmy Swaggart, right? The tears running down my face. He, he's, he's looking into the heart of the situation. And then in verse 3, we see Solomon discussing dreams. And for dreams come through much activity and a fool's voice is known by many words. So all this activity that we have, all, all this busyness that we have, and we begin to make plans and dreams, and we've got lots of words for God. We want to tell Him all the things we need Him to do for us. You know, as I look back on my life, I think, thank God He didn't give me all the things I dreamed. Thank God He didn't give me all the things I had the, 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 the pride to ask for. When I was in the fifth grade, I was determined that I wanted to be an astronaut, an aerospace engineer, and eventually I could be an astronaut, so much so that I convinced my parents that they should send me to space camp. So we, we didn't grow up having a whole lot, but they scraped up enough money, and, and my grandparents helped them out a little bit, and they sent me to space camp in Huntsville, Alabama, a kid that had hardly been out of Illinois. But here I am in Huntsville, Alabama. I'm going to be an astronaut someday. And in case you haven't noticed, I am very much not an astronaut. I'm probably a little too short a little too pudgy. I certainly don't have what it takes to be an astronaut. But that was my dream. I prayed for that. And thank the Lord he didn't grant that. Otherwise, I'd be a rocket man, burning out my fuse out here alone, right? And you know, I've got a lot of kids, and Mars ain't no place to raise your kids. That's probably enough Elton John lyrics. But anyway, you get the idea that, that God looks at all of our words and all the things we throw out there to him, and he's so good to us that he makes sure he, he hones that into the thing we actually need instead of the thing we think we need. But the question I have, am I so busy making noise, am I so busy asking him for these things that I don't hear him? That's a question that we have to ask ourselves as we approach God, God through prayer. Excuse me. All right, the next way that we approach God through prayer is through vows. We make these promises to the Lord. So let's pick back up in verse 4. And when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? So, vows in really any society, and I can really only think of one way in ours that it's used uh, uh, prominently, and that would be wedding vows. That's serious business, right? When we think of a vow, we think of something that's supposed to be for life. And if it's not going to be for life, it's certainly going to cost us a lot of money to get out of it, right? But it's serious business, and it's the same way for God. This is serious 
business. So serious, if you flip back with me uh, to the book of Deuteronomy, let's see what the Lord has to say about vows. Deuteronomy chapter 23, we're going to look at verse 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be a sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be a sin to you. That which has gone from your lips you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily vowed it to the Lord what you have promised with your mouth. So basically what he's saying is be careful what you promise because the Lord's going to expect you to pay up. And importantly to note, do not delay. I don't know if any of you have promised someone something. Have you noticed how easy it is to forget that promise if you don't do it right then? So when we make vows, whether it's to the Lord or to people, we're to take care of the thing. I, I, I set reminders and uh, calendar events and all these things to remember some of the promises that I've got out there. And boy, if I don't write that check or make that email or, or make that phone call right then in that moment, even with all those reminders, it's still easy to forget. So the advice here is to not delay. So biblically, if we look at some of the, the vows that have been made, just a couple highlights I want to point out. One in 1 Samuel, the vow that Hannah makes. Now Hannah is a lady that had uh, wanted a child desperately. In fact, she had an arch enemy that had children, and she would, would pester Aunt Hannah and annoy her and, and remind her of her of her lack of ability to have children. Her womb was barren. So as Hannah is there in the temple, and I put her prayer uh, up here on the screen so we could read it, and she says in 1 Samuel verse 11, And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. So Hannah makes this vow to the Lord. And let me tell you, this is an awesome vow, but it's a whole lot easier to keep before you're pregnant. <laughs> right? She's there. She's desperate. She throws this thing out there, but then guess what happens? She gets pregnant. Now, ladies, I think you would agree that, that this would be a very difficult thing to then follow through with because Hannah didn't give this child up until he was weaned, some three or four years that they would wean in that culture typically. So she has to bring little baby Samuel up and leave him with Eli, the priest. Now the vow becomes very, very serious. So think about the vows you make before you make them, but also understand the power of this vow too is the nation of Israel gets the greatest judge that they ever had in their history who saw not one monarchy, but, but even the monarchy of David ushered in. So Samuel's life really had a, a, a tremendous trajectory after this, but it still started with this vow that was made by his mother that was probably very difficult to keep when it came down to it. So then we could look at another vow that took place in Acts chapter 5, and that would be the vow of Ananias and Sapphira. Now at this point in time with the New Testament church, it was in its very fledgling state, and they had a tremendous idea. You know what we would be great about this worship time is if we just hung out together all the time. 
Let's just all hang out all the time and live as a community of believers together. So let's sell everything, let's, let's put it in a big pile, let's just live communally with the Lord, right? So it seemed like a great idea to live in this utopian society. But the issue uh, is with these two, Ananias and Sapphira, is they sold a valuable piece of property and they almost gave everything that they had vowed to the Lord. And they came in to bring their offering before Peter and the other uh, apostles. And as they did, Peter asked them, as he's prompted by the Spirit, did you give everything that was paid to you for this property? And uh, they answered, oh, absolutely we did. But Peter answers in verse 3 and says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? And if you know the story, at that point in time, Ananias Boom, drop dead. Just like that. Now that's a pretty serious penalty for not keeping your vow. So they drag Ananias off the scene, and then in comes his wife, Sapphira. Because they didn't have cell phones and couldn't text each other, she had no idea that her husband had just been wiped out by the Holy Spirit. So then she's asked uh, by Peter in verse 8, tell me how much you sold the land? Did you send to sell the land for so much? And she said, well, yes, for so much. And wouldn't you know it, that Wham! She dies. That's it. Off the scene. So we see the cost of not keeping a vow to the Lord. Now, I don't want that. I don't want anybody to think that every time we don't keep a vow to the Lord, that's what takes place. Because I don't know about you, but I've made many a vow to the Lord, usually late at night or early in the morning, about the things I would never ever do again, and yet uh, I managed to still do them again. Sometimes twenty-four hours later. But understand, though, the seriousness that, it, that does take place when we lie about something that we were going to do, a vow that we would take before the Lord. And if we aren't careful, too, understanding that these vows, like the prayers we just talked about, can be very much our attempt to control God. That if I promise, Lord, that I will do this thing just this way, then, then you have to do this for me. Or if you do this for me, I promise that I'll, I'll let you be my God, right? A little bit like Jacob. And that's a dangerous road for us to go down to try to control the Lord through religion, through our promises to him. So those are ways that we approach. But let's, let's then look at how Solomon wraps up this particular section of Scripture. As we, we talk about all these potential pitfalls of approaching God uh, in, in a wrong way. What he says in verse 7, For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity, but then he ends with this, but fear God. But fear God. Now fear, we can also equate with reverence, respect, and honor. But there is an element of fear, right? We just talked about the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I'll turn back with you in Matthew chapter 10. What Jesus says about God and about fearing God is, Verse 28 of chapter 10, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's pretty clear about what God has the ability to do. But I think what that points us to, again, is when we enter into this place, is it points us to a a spot where we understand the price of admission. Right? So coming here... Before God, it's a serious thing because the price was so serious, right? The, the cost to Jesus was so serious. And, and yet, 
I think in church today, it, it's really easy to look at the cross and what we've done with it and forget that it's a symbol of death. That we can wear gold crosses and, and, and gold jewelry and it looks pretty, but if you wore an electric chair around your neck, gold-plated, it would look a little strange, right? If I wore a gold a gallow around my neck, you probably would, would not think of something beautiful and wonderful. So there's an element there that is pain and suffering, and it's really to call us back to the great work that he's done. And I think in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, is where I wanted to go as we, as we close out tonight. And therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus... So we're now able to have access by what? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see, we can come with confidence tonight. We don't have to come worrying about being wiped out, because not because I'm faithful, thank the Lord, but because he is faithful, because of the sacrifice he made. And just to, to end and to wrap up, that this idea of fear, I think that the word gets an, a bad rap. So let's look a little bit deeper at what the meaning of fear is that Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And this word knowledge has the root word in the Hebrew, yada, which means to know in an intimate way. And scripturally, you could go back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, and Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. So obviously it's talking about the most intimate of human relationships. That Hebrew word for know, yada, is the same word used here. So what he's calling us to is this knowledge, this, this fear which then leads us to knowledge. He's calling us to know him in the most intimate of ways that we can understand in our human minds. So the question is, do we know God in that way? Do I know him in that way? If not, I would ask you this to, to, to begin to think about it because we've laid all this out and all the ways that, that religion has really mixed things up. But it really boils down to the simple knowledge, the simple knowing in an intimate, close way. That's what he's drawing us to. That's what he wants with us. And we can't be in that spot if we don't spend time with him either. So if you have known him and do know him, but maybe the relationship is strained a little bit, let me, let me just call you to the point to where you, you want to spend more time together. Because if you love someone in that kind of relationship, isn't that what you want to do? You want to be around each other. You want to be around one another. And that's really where we need to be with our worship as we finish up this portion of Ecclesiastes tonight. So, Father, thank you uh, so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we get to know you, Lord, in an intimate way. Not, not a perverse way, but Father, the, the closest way we can possibly know uh, anyone or anything, that's the way that we desire to come to know you. So Lord, please uh, do a work in our hearts, do a work in our lives, do a work in our minds as you renew us.
day by day, step by step. Lord, I, I know that we don't always come to you in the right way. Father, forgive us for that. But we, we do want to have a heart that comes to you in the right way. So, Lord, we thank you for the chance to be here on Wednesday night. Thank you for this group that's gathered. Lord, please bless us and keep us as we go on from this spot tonight. In Jesus' name.